That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Let anyone with ears hear. Skipping to verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what is sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arise on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. As for, with, for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on the, ground, on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. Your tomatoes look terrible. That's how I was greeted when I got home from class one hot summer's day in seminary. I'd gone through my normal routine to get home. I rode the shuttle the two miles from campus back to the apartment complex where I lived. I walked the path to the front door of the building. I typed in the security code to unlock the door and headed up the stairs to my second floor apartment. When I got to the top, JP, my study partner for my summer Hebrew class, was already waiting outside my front door. Your tomatoes look terrible. How's it going, JP? It's good to see you, I answered. <laughs> I hope you all noticed the emphasis on your. Your garden, your tomatoes. It's the same way that Diana might say to me, well, I usually say to her, your child did this or that. Or a parent says to their son or daughter, your brother is making me crazy. Your tomatoes look terrible. To be, to be fair, he was right. But in my defense... The tomatoes weren't exactly mine. They were a group effort of the whole apartment building, a community made up of several of my classmates and their families. It was a mini vegetable garden, a communal garden, meant to be an exercise in bringing the group together, but also to help us save some money at the grocery store. But by the time summer Hebrew was in full swing, there was not much time to water or to weed or to prune or to pick the ripe squash or the green beans or the tomatoes. We had little time for the work 
that was truly needed to keep that garden in tip-top shape. And during his walk up to my building, as JP was headed to our weekly group study group, it appeared to him that I, I alone, had given up the fight altogether. Those poor plants were in serious need of water, and in his mind, and in reality, the dandelions and the crabgrass seemed to have gained the upper hand. So it gives me some comfort to know that Jesus was probably not much of a gardener either. Diana will tell you that I tend to garden by the theory of what a friend of mine calls benign neglect. If it looks friendly and it doesn't threaten anything else, it can just stay. Hence the poison ivy she had to point out to me growing at the back of our property a couple years ago. I've decided I won't ever win any garden club awards, but my yard will never be uneventful. And it seems, at least from our passage in Matthew, that Jesus is not much, does not have much more discipline in that respect either. In Matthew 13, he tells the crowd a story that has, been, that has come to be known as the parable of the sower. A sower goes out to sow, Jesus says, and the seeds fall on the road and on the sidewalk and right underneath the bird feeder where the birds have a heyday. Some of it falls on my overgrown back property line and some of it manages to make it into my neighbor's well-tilled, well-watered, and newly composted garden plot. Here's something, though, that you ought to know about this parable. The best New Testament scholars believe that Jesus ends the story right there. And that's what he had to say. But you can tell from the verses that follow that his disciples didn't have a clue what he was talking about. There's this little exchange about speaking in parables and why some things are plain and some things are hidden. And then beginning in verse 18 comes an explanation of the parable. The path stands for this, and the thorns stand for that, and the birds stand for, and so on and so forth, until it's all tied up, nice and neat, in the end, with a little bow. But here's the thing. The best biblical scholarship suggests that Jesus never said any of that. The interpretation didn't come from Jesus, they say. It came from the early church, which was which, uh, came from the early church, which was so confused by the parable itself that they had to add the interpretation to the end themselves to try to help everyone's confusion. And there's nothing wrong with that, nothing at all, but it does change the message. If you're like me, I hear this parable and its interpretation, and I immediately start worrying about what kind of ground I stand on with God. I worry about how many birds are in my field, how many rocks and thorns there are, and how in the world I can get them all cleaned up so I might be good soil. That's one way to read this, as a parable of responsibility, a warning to us to be eager recipients of the word of God. With this interpretation, we're given the task of turning ourselves into well-watered, well-weeded, well-fertilized gardens to receive God's word. But the parable itself suggests that the odds are three to one against us. And I constantly find myself anxious about whether or not I can clean up my act and get it right. That's one way to read this parable. 
but it's not the only way. And I'm not sure I think it's what Jesus intended. In Jesus' parable, a sower goes out to sow and flings seed everywhere, apparently with no concern for where it lands or what might threaten it. The sower just keeps tossing seed haphazardly into the wind and across the landscape. So we have to ask ourselves, what in the world does that mean? And what sort of lesson do we take from it? See, that's that sort of the point of a parable anyway. C.H. Dodd, one of the great New Testament scholars of the last century, said that the purpose of a parable is to tease the mind into active thought. Tease the mind. Get us thinking. Actively thinking. So if we didn't already think we knew what this parable meant, having heard this interpretation so many times, if we had just had heard the short part that Jesus told us without the tacked-on explanation at the end, if we were those in the crowd gathered on the beach while Jesus taught from the boat, we might spend the rest of the day with this little story rolling around in our heads, and we might come up with something altogether different as a conclusion. Honestly, it comes as good news to me to hear that scholars think that the interpretation of the parable came from the young church and not from the lips of Jesus himself. It doesn't make it any less authoritative, but for me, it's always been hard to fit myself into just one of those categories. Rocky soil and thorn-infested soil and bird-peck soil or good soil. Most of the time, in fact, I find myself wanting to check all of the above. It never seems to be either or for me. It's always both and. And I think that's why I like our other story this morning from the book of Genesis about Jacob and Esau. Jacob always gets high praise in the Bible while Esau comes off looking like the dumb jock older brother. But we have to remember what the Bible is, and what it's not. The Bible was never meant to be a scientific textbook explaining exactly how God created the world in six days. And it was never meant to be a comprehensive world history telling us everything about the ancient world. It was intended from the very beginning to be a narrative history of one group of people, the chosen people of God, And so the biblical narrative is naturally going to lift up all the ways that they look good and all the ways their enemies look bad. So no wonder Jacob can do nothing wrong and Esau can do nothing right. But the writer of Genesis tells us that before Rebekah even knew she was pregnant with twins, she inquired of the Lord who told her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. I picture that wrestling, that striving of Jacob and Esau in the womb, and if I'm completely honest, it reminds me so much of myself. Neither all bad nor all good. Neither all righteous nor all unrighteous. Both and, not either or. It's like that all too familiar verse from Paul's letter to the Romans, I do not do the thing I want, but the very thing I hate. 
The Bible seems to understand and explain an awful lot about human nature. There's no one righteous, not even one, Romans 3 tells us. But the Bible understands even more about God's nature. And more than anything, it wants us to know, as Romans 8 says, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The law or custom of primogeniture, or being the firstborn, says that the firstborn son was to inherit the birthright and the blessing and the entirety of his parents' estate. That's why we seem to make such a big deal of Prince William and Duchess Kate and their children and who will someday be the next king or queen of England, while William's younger brother Harry spent much of his time in the desert training to be a pilot with the Royal Army Air Corps and now lives out west somewhere in California. It's why places like Rugby, Tennessee exist. It was created as a place where the younger sons of the rich elite could exist in a class-free society, in contrast to the land from where they came, a land where the firstborn sons got it all. The law of primogeniture applied to Jacob and to Esau as well. By giving his birthright of the firstborn to Jacob in exchange for a bowl of stew, Esau gives up all of that privilege, all of that inheritance. He gives up his entire future. Jacob gets everything, every last dime. But here's the thing we often forget. Jacob doesn't get all of God's love. Our Hebrew-biased Bible understandably focuses on Jacob's story and the stories of his descendants, but I don't believe God ever quit loving Esau. I don't believe for a minute that God loved Jacob more than Esau or any more than I believe that God loved Isaac more than Ishmael or God loves Israel more than Palestine or vice versa or that God loves America more than God loves China or Russia or vice versa. Because the truth is that all of us are both Jacob and Esau. We are all at the same time firstborn and chosen, as well as dimwits who would give it all up for a bowl of mush. We're at the same time tricksters and deceivers and the ones through whom God will fulfill God's promises. And if you need proof of that this morning or this week, or this year, go back to the parable of the sower. The way Jesus told the parable, I'm not sure it has anything to do with us at all. Instead, it's all about the sower, an extravagant sower who seems unfazed by birds and rocks and thorns, a sower who never, ever runs out of seed, and who trusts that when the harvest comes at last, it will fill the barns to the rafters, not just with the expected seven to tenfold, which was a pretty good yield back in those days. But this sower's harvest will come in 30 or 60 or 100-fold, biblical proportions of exceeding abundance. And while this is God's way, I guarantee you this is not our way. 
I know without a shadow of a doubt that if we Presbyterians were put in charge, we would form a committee to study just how and where and how much seed to sow. We design a more efficient process that doesn't waste perfectly good seed on birds and rocks and thorns, but instead concentrates only on the good soil and what we can, what we can do to make that seed and good soil grow the best. We would become sowing machines. But God is not a machine, nor a tidy Presbyterian farmer. God is an extravagantly gracious sower who throws, seed, who throws seed and caution to the wind, who sows love abundantly with an overflowing and generous hand. That comes as good news to me, and I hope it comes as good news to you too. Because what it means is that God doesn't see the world as either or. God sees it and God sees us as both and both saint and sinner, both Jacob and Esau, both good soil and bad soil. And because of that, God never stops loving. God never stops trying, never stops sowing, never stops spilling and showering grace and mercy and love into our lives. And maybe, just maybe, we can do the same. Amen. Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for the abundance that you continue to give us in our lives, for the sower that extravagantly throws your seed wherever you go. We give you thanks for the blessings of this life and for the ways in which you continue to give us life, even when we trod on barren or thorny ground. The seed of your kingdom is forever being sown into our lives, into our world, O oh God. But it always, doesn't always take root. Sometimes it does fail to find a place to grow. And so we pray for ourselves and others when life makes us hard and resistant like a well-trodden path, where old habits, old systems, and old patterns of thinking keep your message from growing. We pray for ourselves and others when we become so immersed in the short-lived, shallow, rock-hiding soil of the moment where your life too easily gets blown away by the wind. We pray for ourselves and others when our fears, insecurities, Desires and self-absorption tangle like thorns around your grace and choke it into silence. We pray for ourselves and others when your truth brings out the best in us and we grow fruitful in compassion and justice and service and worship. For those who feel as though they lie in barren rocky paths, we pray. For those feeling weary and worn, who struggle with illness, disease, or addiction, give them new life and healing. For those who feel as though they cannot escape the thorns, thorns of poverty, injustice, racism, conflict, whatever it might be, transform those thorns into something life-giving. And for those who sow seeds, knowing they will not see the harvest, 
We pray and give thanks for their faithfulness, for they plant with radical hope, knowing their children will reap the benefits. For those who nurture and weed and even bravely go into the thorns to bring your good news, we give thanks, O God. For those who risk their lives to ensure those suffering know God's powerful love and peace, we lift up in gratitude. The seed of your kingdom is forever being sown into our lives and into our world by you, O God. May it find soil that is good where it can grow and produce a harvest of life, peace, joy, and love in us and across your world. We pray now that prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In response to God's extravagant goodness and blessings in our lives, let us worship God with our tithes and offerings. <laughs> 